From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, this week, Haiti should be inaugurating a new president. They've done that every five years on February 7th, ever since baby Doc Duvalier fled the island 37 years ago. But not this year. Amy Willens will explain why Haiti can't get the new beginning it needs later in the show. But first, Biden and the border, year one. Ahilan Arulanantham will comment. That's coming up in a minute. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com try. Go to shopify.com try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com try. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Biden and immigration. After Trump got elected in 2016, running on an anti-immigrant platform, progressives and liberals welcomed Biden as president. But many have been disappointed at what Biden's done on immigration in his first year. They say he's preserved too much of the Trump immigration policy. For comment, we turn to Ahilan Arulanatham. He's a professor at UCLA Law School and co-director of the Center for Immigration Law and Policy there. Before that, at the ACLU of Southern California, he successfully litigated a number of cases involving immigrants' rights, including the first case to establish a federal right to appointed counsel for immigrants. Ahilan has argued three times before the United States Supreme Court. One more thing, in 2016, he received a MacArthur Genius Grant. Ahilan, welcome back. Great to speak with you again, John. Well, The New Yorker recently ran a big piece about the disillusionment of a young Biden official, a woman whose efforts to roll back Trump immigration policies ran into opposition inside the Biden White House as well as outside. What's your assessment of Biden's first year on immigration? I think that piece is really illuminating because it does show us that there's been a shift in the Biden administration. It's not a monolithic picture. If you'd asked me this question after two weeks or after a month, I would have said they've ended the Muslim and Africa bans. They put a moratorium on almost all deportations to allow a real assessment into the fairness of ICE policies. They've ended the Migrant Protection Protocol program or the Remain in Mexico program, which required asylum seekers for the first time really in American history to wait in Mexico in these squalid and dangerous refugee camps that grew up during the Trump administration. 
they have to wait there for their day in court, which effectively ended asylum um, for a huge number of people, access to, to asylum. Um, and then, of course, there was the Title 42 program, which was a CDC order, again, driven by the Trump administration, which sort of ended what was little was left of asylum uh, on the basis of coronavirus protection. And although the Biden administration didn't end that right away, they promised that they would end it as soon as possible. So then, you know, I would have said, given a very high uh, high grade as to, you know, promises likely to be kept, you could say, um, at that beginning. But then fast forward a time and look at what's happened. You know, the moratorium was sued and they didn't defend it, even though I think there were many very strong legal arguments that could have been made to defend it or just to modify it slightly and defend it. Uh, and they just walked away from that that court case. This A similar thing happened with MBP, the program requiring asylum seekers to wait in Mexico. It was sued, uh, and then they waffled back and forth. At first, it seemed like they were going to just to allow that to go to go and you know to to, st- to be stopped, um, and let let the sort of Texas and the the court the states that had sued them win. Then they changed direction and actually tried to to you know end it end it again, but then that's been stopped. And now it's it's their policy is almost, is almost incoherent. I would say they are saying they're going to appeal to the Supreme Court. They are appealing to the Supreme Court to try and win the right to to wind that program down. But at the same time, they've expanded its use on the ground and actually implemented it far more aggressively than they had to under the court program. So things were very good at the start, and now we've seen steady retrenchment over time. And and what about the number of people in ICE detention? I've read that, that the number actually skyrocketed over Biden's first year, but his Defenders say that's due to the pandemic receding. Is, it, is that right? The number has skyrocketed. It's gone from about 15,000 on any given day at the end of the Trump administration, which was a, a, a number very low um, compared to what we had seen going back uh, many years. And now it's up um, around 20,000. It's above 20,000 on any given day. And that is a huge year-over-year, one-year increase. It's hard to know uh, how much of that is attributable to the pandemic. Certainly, it's true that many of those are people who are being arrested by the Border Patrol. So you can assume from that that those are people arrested in the border region. But it's also true that the Border Patrol arrests a lot of people who have lived here for a very long period of time. Um, In fact, I've just been hearing about cases about that, people who've lived here for 20 years, but who live in the border region, arrested by the Border Patrol, have only very minor and old criminal convictions, have families that they're taking care of, and they're sent into ICE detention. And that's part of the population that the Biden administration is now enforcing the immigration laws against. Biden's new head of Homeland Security is Alejandro Mayorkas. And he recently gave a speech to mayors. It's the fullest presentation of what the Biden administration's current thinking is. He started by saying the most dangerous threat in America today is violent domestic extremism, which is certainly a lot better than blaming foreign terrorists or criminals coming across the border. He also said, quote, we will not dedicate our limited enforcement resources to apprehending individuals who have been here in this country for many years, who have been contributing members of our communities. Unlawful presence in the United States alone will not be a basis for an immigration enforcement action. Instead, we will allocate our resources to those individuals who present a current public safety threat, a threat to national security, or a threat to our border security. So we like that, too. Uh, And then he conceded distrust of ICE is earned, which is pretty significant. Then he concluded speaking to the mayors, I will be coming to you and asking you to reconsider your position of non-cooperation and see how we can work together 
I am willing to work in increments with you. Well, this sounds very cooperative. I wonder what you thought of Mayorkas's speech to the mayors. Definitely think there's a lot of rhetoric and some substance to like in his remarks. Um, and I should say in general, I've I have spoken with um, Secretary Mayorkas a few times, um, including once very publicly. And I mean, he has a deep knowledge of the immigration law. And, and I, I think it's right to take his perspective seriously. That being said, the last part that you mentioned about coming to the mayors to try and increase local cooperation with um, local government cooperation with... Yeah, I what does cooperation mean in this context? Right. What, what it means is they want local government, when they arrest somebody, uh, or for, for whatever reason somebody has come into law enforcement contact, they want the local law enforcement agency to share information about that person with ICE so that Federal Department of Homeland Security and ICE officials can decide whether or not to put that person into their custody and then into deportation proceedings. And this has a long history. This is not something that just, you know, is, is his first idea going back into the Obama administration and even slightly before. The, that part of his remarks I found deeply disappointing and also I think just completely wrong as a, as a, as a policy matter, uh, really, there's really sort of no, no way to defend that program, even though it, it certainly sounds really good on paper. Of course, many of our biggest cities have declared themselves sanctuaries where their official policy is not to cooperate by turning people uh, over to ICE, even people who are in jails. Certainly in L.A. County jails, the largest jail system in the United States, actually, in the world, I think. And, and most other uh, big cities have a similar policy. Isn't that right? That's absolutely right. And California, even at the state level, has um, a policy not quite as protective as the one at the county level, but that also uh, largely prohibits uh, cooperation with ICE in this way. And I think there's two really important things to recognize about this, because it's, it's not, it wasn't an easy task for all these cities and some states to end up with policies like that. Uh, and they evolved over a long period of time. And one really important piece of that puzzle was, was recognizing, based on years of data, that cooperating with ICE does not decrease crime. It does not make people safer. And there's study after study, um, starting from 2014, a study out of the University of Chicago, uh, which was documenting from data earlier than that, then University of California, Davis, a recent one from Stanford, uh, researchers at Stanford. And what these have shown is because you have really good ways of assessing this because different jurisdictions have adopted different rules in different times. In fact, there's I think something like 140 jurisdictions in the country, state and local, which are cooperating with ICE now. Very, In fact, I think even more than that, very, very intensive cooperation, sharing of information. And so you can compare them to what they were before and then what they became later. You can compare to the ones that are and the ones that aren't. And what you see over and over again is that it does not have any effect on crime. Instead, what it does, we know, it destroys families because you take people who have finished serving their sentence and when they would have been reintegrated back into the community and sent back to their family, instead now they go to a new prison system, the ICE prison system, from which they get deported um, unless they can somehow find a lawyer and manage to get a day in court. Um, and then the other thing we know about it is all of this is piggybacking on local law enforcement practices. 
And we know, unfortunately, that local law enforcement practices in many parts of the country are racially discriminatory in an extremely serious way. Everything from which crimes you choose to prosecute. Are you, you know, prosecuting the people who are using cocaine in Beverly Hills or the people who are using you know, marijuana in uh, Montebello or in, you know, uh, in downtown LA, right? We, we know how this works. And so when you just add ICE on top of that, you piggyback on that, and you're just compounding the effects of that racial discrimination. So I've been personally very disappointed by this because the government has all this data. The Biden administration says they want to be data-driven. They say they racial justice is a, is a top priority for them. And yet here they are out here you know, making really the same kinds of arguments that were made during the Obama era. When we, and we know what happened. I mean, President Obama deported 2 million people. He deported more people. And you know, his administration and the prior 200 years of the history of the United States and all of that. Uh, and, and here we are seeing the same thing again. So I, I found that that very, very disappointing. At this point, the biggest uh, concern, the biggest opposition, the biggest outrage over Biden policy is not about local police. It's about the border, about the remain in Mexico policy, which where he is continuing uh, uh, Trump's policy. Uh, that means, according to activists, I'm quoting now, children and adults trapped in Mexican border cities face kidnappings, sexual assault, and other attacks and lack access to critical resources. That's from Monica Langarica. Tell us about her and why we should listen to her. Well, she, she's an attorney here at the Center for Immigration Law and Policy at UCLA, um, but she's based in San Diego and has been doing litigation and uh, advocacy and also representing asylum seekers um, in the border region now um, for something like seven years, I think, if I remember right. And so she's been sort of witness to what's happening on the border for all these years. And I think it's it's both been just enormously disappointing for advocates to see this policy, which ended effectively ended asylum for the vast majority of people seeking asylum in this country, turned its, our back on the promises that we made after World War II, when we saw what happened, when we turned refugees away. You know, and, and it's really an extraordinary shift that President Trump initiated. Um, and to see that continued and continued in this aggressive way um, has has just been, yeah, I, I it's, it's hard to put words on it. It's, it's so disappointing and so sad for, for people, um, you know, they're watching this humanitarian crisis continue when it's entirely of our own making. One other thing I think I would say about it is I was watching the presidential debate when I saw uh, candidate Biden give just an, ex an incredibly powerful, full-throated defense of asylum. He said, look, this is the way it's always been since we've had this. You get to come here and apply. That's what happens. You come here and apply. We don't make you wait in some other dangerous place when you try and get refuge in our country. And he won the election. <laughs> um, and, and yet now we've seen just this extraordinary, extraordinary broken promise on that subject. Um, I think that coupled with Title 42, of course, you know, which is also shut access to the asylum process, um, they've been, yeah, it's just, just very sad. And of course, everybody wants to know why. Why are they doing this? They don't have to do this. They promised they would not do this. Why are they doing it? I think that New Yorker piece may give us some insight into it. You know, I can't claim to know, but it does seem like there's a power struggle happening within the administration, that there are some people who uh, really do believe in asylum and, and want to engage in a, a more full-throated defense uh, of it, and other people who 
um, really fear the border politics and I, I, fundamentally, for whatever reasons, are willing to renege on this basic humanitarian protection and commitment that the United States has made for, for a half century. Uh, and at the moment, those people seem to be having the upper hand. I think it's also true that the that the political, uh, sorry, the, the legal environment has played a role in this. I mean, the first thing that happened was they ended the, the program and were in the process of winding it down when the courts then came and said uh, that was illegal. But I think if they were really committed to it, if there was no ambiguity on their part, there's a lot of things that you could do to protect asylum seekers, even in the midst of this legal environment. And they just certainly didn't have to expand MPP and apply it so broadly as they've done, uh, as they've done already. And one other immigration issue that we have talked about before is a temporary protected status, TPS. This is, uh, what is it, half a million people uh, from Haiti, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, a couple of other places, Sudan and Nepal, who've been allowed to live and work here in some cases for decades because of dangerous conditions in their home countries. Uh, we didn't think about this very much until the Trump years when Trump tried to deport them and you. This was one of your big projects at the ACLU was to fight the ending of TPS, and you succeeded in delaying it. What's happening now? What is Biden doing with TPS? This is another great example of this um, kind of Jekyll and Hyde sort of approach. Now, on the one hand, the Biden administration uh, redesignated Haiti and expanded the set of people, Haitians, living in the U.S. who can be protected. But then just very shortly after that, when a set of around 14,000 Haitians uh, came to the border uh, and were, were um, you know, in this refugee camp in Texas trying to get into the United States, obviously facing the same conditions. They hadn't been in Haiti in a long time, the set of people, but they were facing, if they were deported there, the same set of conditions that were the basis for granting protective status to Haitians. They deported them all summarily without even giving them a chance to apply for asylum. Um, and now we're seeing the same thing with Venezuela, oddly enough. So President Trump, former President Trump, granted a form of protection to Venezuelans. And one of the first things that President Biden did was he, he gave a more firm footing to that by making that into TPS. So President Biden granted TPS to people from Venezuela, obviously feeling, fleeing the Maduro regime. And you know, there's many good reasons why several million people have fled Venezuela. But now the Biden administration is trying to deport Venezuelans who are coming here now. In fact, they just concluded some kind of agreement with Colombia so that many Venezuelans who are coming here seeking asylum are being deported to Colombia, even though they can't be deported to Venezuela. You know, as to the, the primary people who are my clients, the, the population of people who have lived here, as you said, for decades and have held TPS all this time, that remains in limbo at the moment. So we have been in a negotiation with the Biden administration about trying to and uh, that litigation and create some kind of form of permanent, we can't win a permanent protection, but some kind of form of, of extended protection for this for this population of people. Um, but it's been a hard, I mean, I can't say too much, obviously it's a negotiation, but it's been a hard negotiation. And it, it doesn't feel like we're negotiating with people, the same people who wrote the promise, which is on joebiden.com's website that he will protect these people. <laughs> it does not feel like that. It feels much more like we're negotiating with people who are adversaries. That's definitely been my my experience of it. We all appreciated Mallorca saying that they would not apprehend individuals who have been here in this country for many years who have been contributing members of our communities. That's something that defenders of the immigration have argued forever. 
Yes. Uh, and if that were actually the practice on the ground, I think we would all be so much happier. Um, but unfortunately, even the, the memo implementing Secretary Mayorkas's uh, policy does not have in it any clear lines. It doesn't say you should not, as guidance to ICE officers, you should not arrest anyone who's lived here more than, say, 10 years or 20 years. It doesn't say you can't proceed to try and deport somebody who's been taking care of their children, minor children, or their parents, or who's an essential worker, or or just because they have a, their only conviction is a misdemeanor, or is only for drug possession, or something like that. Um, and anecdotally, uh, we have heard, since even this memo went into effect, so just I'm talking about now the last you know four or five months, that there are still ICE officers uh, and, and ICE attorneys prosecuting cases like that. Uh, I heard about a case of a person who had been here more than 20 years in this country with extensive family ties. Their only conviction is for a nonviolent misdemeanor from the year 2000. Uh, yet ICE is proceeding in court trying to get that person deported. People eligible for DACA, um, a mother of three American children, one of whom is 12 years old in Chicago, who was detained for 10 months. Her conviction is a counterfeiting, a counterfeiting conviction. She was in jail for one day for this conviction, but there she was, and she was only released after a huge release, you know, a substantial campaign, a political campaign to get her out. So these things are still. I mean, there's a man. There's a man who was pardoned by the governor of California, Ricky Chun is his name, a Cambodian who, uh, man who led a lawsuit against Tr uh, President Trump, the Trump administration, for trying to deport all these Cambodians with very, very old convictions. He's, pardoned by the governor of California, and ICE is not uh, willing to, to give up his case. So I just I just think, you know, th they say the definition of insanity is when you do the same thing again and again and expect a different result, right? I mean, these policies are just like the policies that were happening under the Obama administration. And we saw what happened in the Obama administration. So I think it's really the onus is on them, um, on Secretary Mayorkas and, and, and um, his agency, to show how these policies are actually being implemented in a way that, that has really created a change in ICE. Otherwise, what you believe is it's the same people doing more or less the same things that they've, that they've done before. Ahilan Arulanantham. He's a professor at UCLA Law School and co-director of the Center for Immigration Law and Policy there. Ahilan, thanks for all your work and thanks for talking with us today. It's always great to talk with you, John. Thanks for having me. In Haiti, inauguration day for the new president comes every five years during the first week of February, except for glitches, coups, and postponements. This has been the case for more than three decades, but not this year. For an explanation, we turn, of course, to Amy Willens. She's the author of the award-winning books, The Rainy Season, Haiti Since Duvalier, and Farewell Fred Voodoo, A Letter from Haiti, among other books. She was Jerusalem Bureau Chief for The New Yorker. She writes for The Washington Post, The New York Times, and The LA Times. And she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She also teaches in the Literary Journalism Program at UC Irvine. And she was a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Leftists around the world care about Haiti, not just because it's a desperately poor country, but because Haiti had the first slave revolution starting in the 1790s. It was the largest slave uprising since Spartacus. It started as part of the French Revolution, and it established the world's first black republic. And Haiti has been punished 
by France and the United States pretty much ever since. That's why we care about Haiti. Let's start with the historic promise of democracy in modern Haiti, which you date to February 7th, 1986. That's right. And February 7th is the traditional inauguration day. Um, and what happened on that day was that um, after weeks and even months of popular uprisings around the country, not just in the capital, uh, the United States was moved to abandon finally and completely the Duvalier uh, dynasty, um, the 29-year dynasty of Francois Papadoc Duvalier, president for life, and his son, Jean-Claude Babydoc Duvalier, president for life. For Babydoc Duvalier, president for life was a misnomer. And on February 7th, 1986, he flew out of the country with wife, kids, mom in tow, drove his silver BMW into a C-141 U.S. cargo plane and fled to, uh, to France. So what was supposed to happen this year on February 7th? Well, as every year, except for many years, a new president would be uh, inaugurated after an electoral campaign and an election. But because uh, President Jovenel Moïse was assassinated on July 7th, of this past summer, and then replaced by a de facto prime minister who was unelected, extra constitutional, et cetera, uh, but backed by the United States of America. There was no election held. The new um, prime minister, de facto, uh, Ariel Henry, did not see a way to hold an election, although he promised elections as soon as possible with more than 100 gangs running the country, essentially running the country, holding the means of violence and uh, kidnapping and assassinating at will. First of all, where do we stand right now on the search for the assassins? Well, it's an interesting story. Um, in the immediate aftermath of the assassination, uh, about 40 Colombian mercenaries, apparently whose presence had not been noted yet by the forces of order, the police of Haiti or the government of Haiti or anyone, um, were arrested almost immediately. They had no exit plan. They didn't really seem to be involved completely in the assassination since they had no way of getting out. Um, and then there were a series of arrests and um, revelations culminating most recently in um, a big New York Times piece in which one of the suspects in the assassination who was at the time on the lam revealed to the New York Times in a parking lot in an unnamed country that the de facto prime minister at this moment, supported by the U.S. government, was possibly an accomplice in the assassination and was in touch with the main suspect in the assassination, still a person still unarrested uh, somewhere in the world. So there is a kind of sword of Damocles hanging over this de facto prime minister. And... The de facto prime minister, Ariel Henry, as you said, <clears throat> said he wants to take the country to elections as soon as possible. But you say the Haiti he rules is no country for elections. No, it really is no country for elections right now. I mean, one of the saddest things was, if my listeners remember, when they uh, when the U.S. Um, deported maybe thousands of Haitians uh, to a country where they were not deporting anyone because it was so irregular and dangerous that they had told 
the temporary protected status people in the United States that they had to remain, well, that they could remain because the U.S. could not, according to its human rights standards, send them back to Haiti. But it deported all these other people back to Haiti. In fact, Haitians who hadn't lived in Haiti in maybe five or 10 years and who were just trying to get into the U.S. because they thought the Biden administration would be friendlier to them than the Trump administration. Instead, they were deported and they couldn't get from the point of rival in Haiti to wherever it was they were hoping they were going to land in Haiti to you know, live because the roads are too dangerous. They can't get through. The gangs are too dangerous. The gangs will see them. The gangs will know that the US gave each one of them $10 and they'll be kidnapped or just shot in a robbery. Um, equally, uh, oil uh, deliveries to Haiti were stopped twice in recent months by the gangs and the gangs control the road into the capital. So effectively they stopped the country from running, no doubt, you know, holding someone sort of uh, hostage through this um, stopping of the oil. They can stop anything. They hijack cars going to hospitals. They assassinate nurses. You can't go voting in that country. You'll just be uh, shut up. So no one will vote in an election. And in fact, it's been, I don't even see that Ariel Henry has tried to reach elections. And I don't know that he could if he tried because Haitians don't believe in him, they don't trust him. And now they think that he was a party to the assassination of Jovenel Moïse. Much as they didn't like Jovenel Moïse, that's not acceptable. So without elections, how is the battle for control of Haiti being fought? Well, I mean, I've talked about these people before, and I will talk about them again until the United States moves to abandon Ariel Henry and let this movement go forward. And that's a movement of, it's called the Commission for a Haitian Solution to the Crisis, a very unwieldy name. It's known mostly by the name of the accord it signed with all of its many various members who represent, I would say, several thousand Haitian people. Um, it's called the Montana Accord that they signed because it's named after the Hotel Montana in Haiti. So the, the commission is a, an umbrella group, a consensus group, sort of pushed by the United States to accept um, even less progressive people than they might want to originally have accepted under their umbrella, but they've done it. And they have a plan, a written out plan for moving forward and they started before the assassination, months before the assassination of Jovenel, because Jovenel also was someone who it was accept, unacceptable to go forward to elections with because you couldn't trust the election, who would come out and vote. It's the same situation it is now. It's not a manageable situation. The people who are running the country were criminals under Jovenel, and they're still criminals under Ariel Henry. And uh, the commission is sitting there with all these plans, they just elected, you know, selected, you could say, they had 40 members uh, in the commission who were chosen to go forward and vote uh, among several candidates for uh, an interim president and an interim prime minister to lead the country to elections. And they elected them. They're perfectly respectable, unsullied persons. And the commission is largely made of unsullied, respectable people who actually might care about Haiti. I mean, there may be deals going on under the table, I don't know. But this is something that is an alternative and it's not a horrible alternative. The United States somehow gets to decide who rules Haiti. 
it seems like the United States, at least right now, continues to support Ariel Henry rather than the plans of the Commission for a Haitian Solution to the Crisis. They chose Ariel, actually, Dr. Henry, I should call him. They chose him over the person who had been prime minister when Jovenel was shot. It's complicated, but let's just simplify it by saying there was one person who had been fired by Jovenel. And then there was Ariel Henry, who had been appointed by uh, Jovenel. But then Jovenel was killed before Ariel Henry took office. So there was the other guy who he had fired was still in office. And the United States said, no, we're taking Ariel Henry. And since that moment, when they made Ariel Henry de facto and, and announced it through their embassy and the embassies of what is called the core group friends, or you might call them enemies of Haiti, um, <laughs> Ariel has been the de facto prime minister. And there he is. But I think the reason they stick with Ariel Henry is he was there at the time of the assassination, ready to take office. Then he took office, they supported him. And he's one guy, they can manage one guy. One guy, they can tell him what to do. They can stop him from doing what they don't want him to do. They can order him to make a consensus government, but that won't really be consensus because they don't like that. And with the um, commission, it's a huge umbrella group of actual Haitians representing the actual Haitian people. It's a democratic institution. They don't like democracy, especially <laughs> when it's a democracy that's going to be voted in by a, a population they don't trust. And you tell me why they don't trust the democratic will of the Haitian people, because black lives don't matter to the U.S. government. And they don't they never trusted them when they voted in Aristide, who was voted in in the only free and fair election in 1989. The, the U.S. couldn't stand it and had to, you know, green light a coup against him. They they had two coups against him. <laughs> and it's astonishing. And this time, I think they're afraid of the progressive nature of the commission, which is not allied with Aristide. The commission does have some support in Congress. There is a Haiti caucus in the House. It's not huge. It's founded and chaired by congressmen from Michigan named Andy Levin. Most of the members are black. And they support the Commission for a Haitian Solution. What do you know about the Haiti caucus in the House? They've been very good and they've been really pro-democratic. You know, that could always change, I guess. But they seem to be really great. Andy Levin, and I really like him. He says the right things about Haiti, according to me. Um, he's been against Ariel Henry for a long time. We don't understand why Henry is staying in power, why he wants to be even in power. But I'm sure there are many good reasons to be in power in Haiti. And the rest of the caucus seems to, you know, get together and and support the right things, but how much power they have, I don't know. The Black Caucus has, has supported them and the Caribbean Caucus in the Congress equally. So we'll see, but you know, they send letters to Blinken and Biden and nobody seems to pay much attention to their point of view. One reason for Ariel Henry to stay in power is as, prime minister, de facto or not, he seems to have some kind of executive privilege and not to be prosecutable. That would be a reason to stay in power. But but if the evidence does show that Ariel Henry was part of the assassination plot, the United States will have to turn elsewhere. And do you have any idea what plan B for Biden and Blinken is? 
I think plan B may maybe plan one A, like there's Ariel Henry and then okay. there's the commission. I don't see um, a third way for the administration. So, and I know that they've been talking to the commission, the U US representatives, not congressmen, but representatives from the US government and others who are uh, confidants of the US government in Haiti. And, and they, I know that the US pushed them to sign, uh, sign on some former senators that they really didn't maybe have that much interest in having on board, but now they're on board too. And that's, I think it's good, even if those guys I don't really trust completely, I think it's good to cover a swath of, of the political class too. But I don't know that the Americans feel comfortable. It might explode in their face. Whereas, as I say, you know, one guy you can pretty well control, but it's going to be embarrassing if while they're controlling him and supporting him, he's then charged in the assassination. But they may be able, I regret to say this, but they may be able to control that too. And there's one other potential force here. The Haitian people, they seem powerless victims of all this right now, but does it have to be that way? Well, let's go back to the original February 7th. On that February 7th, without the, um, there's a word in French, debout, that's when you stand up, um, without them rising to protest against Duvalier, uh, you know, it could be that little Nicolas Duvalier, who is grandbaby doc, might be in power right now. In fact, he may rise to power at some point. He's in Haiti right now. But, you know, without the protests, Duvalier would have stayed for longer. So, but it depends whether the commission has the popular will behind it. It's, it's hard to rise up when you're in poverty and frightened of the gangs and you don't want to come out, you have to rise up en masse. And we're waiting to see if that might happen, but it might not happen. And when I say we, I don't mean me, <laughs> but one is waiting to see what will happen there. You know, um, the poverty is so intense and so obdurate and so immovable and awful right now in Haiti. And, you know, there's no electricity. You can't send your kids to school when you think it's time for them to be in school. You just can't do it. it it's, it's really awful. Plus, there's a, an illegitimate government in power. Any final thoughts? Yeah, I think after looking at the options, which are not, you know, myriad, um, the United States is eventually, and I hope sooner rather than later, like before the midterms, I hope they're going to, and I believe they will, switch parties. And, and support the commission. I believe that there are a lot of negotiations going on. I don't know that for a fact, but I, I sense. And I think they'll do the right thing because the right thing will finally appear to them to be the only thing to do. Amy Willens, she wrote about Haiti most recently for the LA Times. Amy, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much, Jim. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. 
D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.